Amen. You may be seated. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and one of the guys in the back will, within a minute or so, hand you a Bible. Here they come. Proverbs chapter 6. Got a quick announcement before we get into Proverbs here. Our church picnic has finally been rescheduled. It's been a lot of work to try to figure out what day and when. So here it is. Write this down. October 12. October 12. That's a Sunday. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to have our worship gathering. And then right when we are done, we are heading to Robert E. Lee Park. It's an easy drive. Or you can hop on the light rail right here and it gets right, takes you right to Robert E. Lee Park. And we will hang out for the afternoon and eat. It's a BYOM barbecue, which means bring your own meat. Uh, that's how we do it here, and it creates these wonderful large feasts. Bring a meat and bring a side to share, and uh, we will have a good time on October 12. Write that down, and I hope to see you there that Sunday, and of course, with us that afternoon. Um, Proverbs chapter 6. We are walking through the Proverbs, and here we come to the sixth chapter. Let me read it. We're going to read the first 19 verses, and I ask you to follow along in your Bible as I read, and then also as we work through it today. Proverbs 6, starting with verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of of the hunter. Like a bird from the hand of a fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise, arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Let's pray and ask God to open our eyes to this passage. Father, we do ask that your Spirit work among us this morning so that we might have right understanding. Help us then to apply this passage to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6.2 
bear one another's burdens, and you fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law? What is, what is God's law? Well, it's the law that was written on the hearts of mankind. The law that was written on the heart of Adam. It's the law that is summarized in the Ten Commandments. It's the law that Jesus further summed up into two commandments. Love God and, what's the second one, which is like it? Love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible says some pretty remarkable things about us loving one another. About us finding unity. As a matter of fact, Jesus said something astounding himself. Jesus said that it's in the way that we love, in the way that we come together as a body in unity. I mean, not just the fact that we love, but the way that we love one another. In this, the world will know that, Christ, that, that the Father sent Him. I mean, I want you just to like, let that sit with you for a moment. The world, Baltimore City, our neighborhood, Upton, Madison Park, Bolton Hill, the broader Baltimore, Charles Village, all right? The world will know that Christ is legit in the way that we love one another, in the way that we bear one another's burdens, in our oneness, in our unity. Now this is where wisdom plays a role. Because law doesn't go far enough. So God gives us law. God tells us what to do. God tells us what He expects of us. But there are thousands of decisions that we make every day that we don't even think about. Thousands of decisions that we're not like processing through the lens of God's moral law. So, I mean, not only that, let me actually expound on that a little bit. There are thousands of decisions that we make every day that are not black and white, that are kind of gray, that the Bible doesn't necessarily speak to directly. All right? And all of these decisions in life uh, determine how well we love one another as a community. All of these decisions determine our oneness in our own church. This is where wisdom comes in. You see, God doesn't just give us law, but He gives us wisdom. And wisdom becomes the delicate hands which shape the unity and the love in our community. Meaning, when we live lives with wisdom, then we find great community among ourselves. Why is it that so many churches have, have uh, gossip and discord and backbiting and feuds? It's because individuals are living lives outside of a life filled with wisdom. Live life with wisdom and we find unity. Live life without wisdom and we will find only uh, problems. Now, what we see in this passage in Proverbs chapter 6 are three different um, seemingly unrelated examples or exhortations. 
The first one right there, it, it's this, uh, this, this reckless application of love, and it has to do with co-signing loans. Did you know that the Bible talks about co-signing loans? Well, it does, and we're going to talk about that. The second example there, it, it then turns to the sluggard or to, to the lazy person, this sort of self-centered application of love. And then the third example is this worthless person or a person whose life is, is lived with no worth before God, and that is because this person is the mocker, the deceiver, the, the person that, that has a divisive strategy locked in his heart. Now, I want you guys to look at verses 16 through 19 because what we see here in these verses, I think, is the thread which ties together these three seemingly unrelated examples. All right? So picture it. Uh, Co-signing loans, laziness, the divisive person. We see in this numeric proverb of verses 16 through 19, this little thread that ties everything together. All right? So what I want to do is actually start with the end today. I want to look at this what's often called a numeric proverb, and I want to I I discover this thread that will help us walk through the entire passage together. So we see right there in verse 16, this is the numeric part, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomin- abomination to Him. Now, what is that? It's kind of creepy. It's kind of weird, right? Well, it's actually pretty common in ancient uh, poetry as well as in ancient proverbs. Uh, this is what some commentators refer to as a uh, numeric proverb. Uh, it's designed to, to, do, to do two things for you. One, it's designed to help you remember. These are six things, seven things, etc. But also it's designed to emphasize something. It's designed to emphasize that last uh, and, and greatest number. So for instance, if I were to say, there are three things that I want you to have and four things I want to give you, what I'm, what I'm saying is, is this, this last and greatest number, this fourth thing that I want to give you, is going to help define uh, maybe how to use the first three. Does that make sense? So that last becomes the thread through which, or the lens through which, you read and understand all that has gone before. So let's just take a look at this proverb. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. So remember that seventh item is going to be the big, the big one that helps us understand the others. Let's take a look at these items. The first one, haughty eyes. By the way, this goes right down the body, okay? Haughty eyes, eyes that are prideful, ha- eyes that are lifted up, eyes that look down on other people in a divisive way. I'm better than you, all right? God hates haughty eyes uh, going down the body, the, the tongue, a lying tongue, a tongue that sows discord among their brothers and sisters through, through spreading lies, hands that shed blood, all right? Maybe not physically, but with the heart. That leads us to the next one. A heart that devises wicked plans. A heart that just kind of sits back and strategizes. How might I take advantage of this group of people? How might I take advantage of this individual? Right down the body, eyes, mouth, hands, heart, feet, in verse 18, that make haste to run to evil. All right, there's a fight over there. You pull out your phone. You are running to capture that thing on your phone, right? Feet, uh, feet that make haste to evil. Or maybe you're running to partake in the fight. That's actually probably a better application of this 
passage. All right, so there's, that's the first five right down the body, which basically says this. Your whole body's like depraved, all right? I think that's the picture that's painted here. Just scanning, scanning the body. Uh, this is a picture of someone who is created in the image of God. Every body part was created to be used to reflect the beauty, holiness of God. And God, God just simply hates it when we pervert His image. So He hates it when, when we use our body in a way that, that sows discord and that is hateful and that is prideful. All right? You're getting the picture there? Now, the last two are uh, types of people. So the first one we see right there, a false witness who breathes out lies. This is maybe somebody sitting, sitting in court and they're breathing out false, uh, a false testimony. Or maybe this is someone... Uh, who, who is exaggerating about the sin issue of another person so that they might get him in some ways or hurt, get, get them pointed out as, as a bad person, all right? Somebody who breathes out lies. And now here's the seventh. This is the one through which we can read the others. The one who sows discord among his brothers. The one who sows discord among his brothers, instead of planting seeds of peace and love and joy, this man is planting seeds of contention. He's planting seeds of divisiveness. So what I want to do, this is how I want to spend our time this morning, I want to go back and I want to look at these three examples that we're given here. By the way, they're all negative examples, all right? They're all like kind of bad. It's going to be kind of a negative sermon this morning but it's to show us something very positive. The positive statement is this. Wisdom, a life filled with wisdom, is a life that leads to wonderful, unified, loving community in the local church, as well as outside of the local church, in our neighborhoods and in, in our workplaces. But it begins here. However, these are three examples of a life lived outside of wisdom, and they are progressive in nature. I'm going to show you what I mean by that. These are three examples of a life li lived outside of wisdom. And you will see how all three connect and show us that, that the person who sows seeds of discord is truly a destructive person. All right, so let's look at the first example here. We see it in verses 1 through 5, and it is that personal finances or our personal financial decisions affect our community. So let's look at the negative example, everybody, in verse 1 and 2. Just read along with me. It says, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have given a pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth. Now that is ancient language for co-signing a loan. Giving pledge for a neighbor. Uh, promising uh, to put up security for somebody, and you are now caught in the words of your mouth. You're caught in your signature, we might, we might say today. You're putting your neck on the line as a pledge for somebody else. You're putting your neck on the line for, uh, for someone else, let's contextualize this, to receive a loan of whom the bank didn't find worthy, all right? <clears throat> now, what's the problem with that, all right? Now, first of all, you might be scratching, like Jesus really speaks to uh, co-signing loans. I should, not, I should have listened to this. I should have read this uh, last Friday before I signed the loan. Listen, the Bible speaks to all of life, all right? Now, we've got to remember this. This is wisdom. 
Meaning this isn't moral law. All right, so this isn't something that is like necessarily morally wrong, but it's something that is unwise. Do you, do you see the difference there? This is something that can lead in, in, in a very destructive way. So what is the problem here? Well, let's walk through it a little bit. First, first uh, uh, somebody else's money problems become your own ruin. That's problem number one. Somebody else's money problems become your own ruin. Look at verse 3. It says, then do this, my son, save yourself. Why is he using this strong language, save yourself? Well, it's because you've placed yourself uh, into the hands of somebody else. And if they falter on their own, now, now that's your ruin. All right, that comes down on you. Now, Google this, all right? I challenge you. Google, co-signing loans uh, uh, warning, all right? And you will see that there are financial institutions all across the board that give warnings to those who are thinking about co-signing a loan. Let me just give you one. I, I Googled it. I found one from USA Student Loan Center. And it's a big, they have a whole page dedicated to a big, big fat warning about co-signing loans. And they give some statistics first. They say uh, millennials, which is uh, probably over half of you guys, like people that are like in their 20s or whatever. Um, millennials... Uh, on average, 35% of millennials have co-signed for a college loan. 32% have co-signed for a residential lease. 19% a car loan. 17% have co-signed for credit cards. That one's like really bad, all right? Some of these others, we can kind of get some wiggle room. <laughs> a credit card one, 17% have co-signed for a credit card. Now, then there's this warning that comes. And it says, if the borrower doesn't pay, you are responsible for the whole amount owed. Well, it's kind of like a given, but it, it, it deserves to be stated. If the borrower doesn't pay, you are now responsible to pay the entire amount, all right? But then, this is what I found interesting on this one website, there was even a warning to the young person considering getting this loan. They said this, if the co-signer, meaning this person that, that's helping you out, if the co-signer dies or files for bankruptcy, lenders will often require an immediate payment of the remaining debt in full. It's not surprising that God gave a warning about co-signing loans thousands of years before, before USA, uh, I forget what it's called, Student Loan Center, the USA Student Loan Center. God got, it, got to it before they did. It's the, the point here is that it's generally unwise because now some other person's financial ruin will mean your financial ruin, or flip it around, your financial ruin will also mean their financial ruin. Could end bad both ways. Uh, the second thing here is this. Money isn't for you to gamble with. Money isn't for you to gamble with. Look at verse 3 again. For you have come now into the hand of your neighbor. You have come, you have placed your, your reputation, you've placed your financial security into the hands of somebody else. One commenter said that Christians are called to be generous with their money, but Christians are never called to gamble their money. So if you say, well, I just want to be a generous person and help, all right, great, buy it for them, all right? If you can be, if you want to be generous, buy them the car that they want, all right? If you can't afford to buy them the car, well, guess what? You can't afford 
to gamble. Money isn't for you to gamble with. All right, lastly here, we see this, this sort of uh, urge, this admonition to get out. Get out of what you've got yourself into. Look at, look at how he says it. He says, go and hasten. Plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the hand of a fowler. That is like intense, isn't it? He's like, look, you found yourself co-signed alone with somebody. Pester them. Get out of it. Plead, like, don't go to sleep tonight until you found a way out of it. Plead with them to pay it off as soon as possible. Plead with them to maybe get it uh, refinanced completely in their own reason. Like, figure out a way, he's saying, to get out of the loan. Now, I think that this example is really less about uh, money, and it's more about a reckless application of love. Here's what I mean by that. We might think about co-signing loans, and, and you know, some of you guys, I, you probably have some co-signed loans, and there is grace, even for the, those that with co-signed loans. Um, just get out of it uh, as soon as possible. But here, here, here's, here's, I think, the bigger point. There's this reckless application of love. This is what I mean. You might say, it's a loving gesture to help out a family member or a friend. I, you know, I, I think they're good for it. Um, they, they need this. Uh, and so it's, so it's loving and it's generous for me, to, for me to help them out in this way. Well, the answer is, is not really. It's not really loving. Because if you end up filing for bankruptcy, you have not loved them, have you? If you end up dying, you have not loved them, have you? If they end up not paying their loan, they have not loved you. Have there? Have, have they? So this is, it, it, it's very possible that this could end very badly. And what seems at first to be a loving action is really a reckless application of love. Are you tracking with me on that? First, it has the potential of harming both of you. We've already talked about this. They, they don't pay, you're sunk. You die, they're sunk. Secondly, the phrase, I need this, is rarely true. I need this is rarely true. Challenge them on that. You really need this car. You really need this credit. I need this is very rarely true. There are often ways to get by without having that new car, aren't there? Is this for your survival? Listen, it's not love because we should not um, help somebody uh, uh, grab something, have eyes bigger than their, than their wallet, all right? We should not uh, help somebody, in, in, first, in their greed for sure. Secondly, to just simply make unwise financial decisions that they can't afford. So it's ultimately not loving in that sense as well. Thirdly, the third way it's not loving is, is, is this, meeting felt needs is just simply not always love. Meeting somebody's felt need is not always a loving action, but rather we are called as a body to love each other, listen, in the way that the other individual needs to be loved. We are to love in the way, not that they feel they ought to be loved, but in the way that they need 
to be loved. So, meaning this, we never seek a, uh, a full unity, all right, like a, a feeling of unity at the cost of authentic love. Often, listen, authentic love will temporarily create a disunity or a disconnect. But friends, that is different than discord, all right? Never seek a sense, a feeling of unity at the expense of authentic love. Let me explain what I mean by that. For example, choosing to soften soften, uh, certain doctrines to make the faith more palatable is never love. So at at first, uh, it feels like love. At first, we can kind of redefine the way that we have always, for 2,000 years, interpreted a certain passage. And we can, we can look at that all over again, and, and it feels like it's creating a, a uh, I don't know, a sense of unity among the body. We can, we can decrease doctrine and increase, increase unity. Listen, that's, that's ridiculous. We don't decrease doctrine and increase community. As a matter of fact, the great uh, polemic writings of church history, the, these, these writings that, uh, that were written intentionally to confront the claims that Jesus was not fully God, or to confront the claims that Jesus was not fully human, to confront the claims that, uh, that, that, that I don't know, that uh, Jesus didn't fully die for your sins and take, take the wrath of God in his own flesh. The writings that were written against these kind of heresies always had this as the goal, the unity of the church. You see, the church, we, we are unified not through diminishing doctrines, but rather we are unified around doctrines. That's actually where we find our common unity. So we never soften doctrine, sense of felt need to, to, to love. It's, it's inauthentic. It's a, it's a reckless application of love. Secondly, the failure to warn the failure to gently and lovingly rebuke, the failure to discipline an individual who is sunk in sin, in the ditches of wickedness, the failure to do so in an attempt to be nice, in an attempt to to be friendly, is, is a reckless application of love. It's not love in the end. We must love one another in the way that they need to be loved. That means pursuing holiness. And really, this is just simply modeling Christ. Because you know what? Christ loved you in a way that you didn't think you needed to be loved, right? I mean, you had a debt. Talk about debt. You had a debt that you could not pay. And that was the debt of sin. And the wages or the payment for that debt is death. Jesus took that debt upon Himself. He loved you in a way that you didn't even know that you needed to be loved. He died for you. And now that we have come into the understanding of His glorious grace and the Spirit has regenerated us and opened our eyes to the Gospel and we see Christ, now we can say, yes, that is love. But we didn't didn't think that was love at first, did we? 
We didn't see that as love at first. No, we love in the way that people need to be loved, and that is through pointing them to Christ ultimately. Well, this leads us to our second example here. Not only do your personal financial decisions affect community, but also your personal ambition or lack thereof affect, affects community. Look at verse 6. We see in this first line the word sluggard. The sluggard. What is the sluggard? Well, this, a sl- sluggard is an old English word that, that literally means a slow and heavy person. All right? Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, I'd rather watch molasses drip? Anybody? Is that just like an Ohio phrase maybe? All right. <laughs> um, my daughters understand what a sluggard is. As they're trying to get the honey out of the bottom of the jar, you know, on their, on their, on their Cheerios, and it's just not coming. All right? That, that slow, heavy sluggardry. We're going we're gonna to invent a word this morning. Slug, it's a sluggardry. That's, what, that's, a, that's a molasses is a sluggard. Honey is a sluggard. All right? The slow, I mean, another good interpretation would be a lazy person. All right? We're talking here about a lazy person. Now, who is the sluggard? First, we see in verse 9, the sluggard says, I don't know when I'll get up. Look at verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? And there's no answer. Because the sluggard doesn't know. He says, uh uh-uh. Everybody say it, uh-uh. The sluggard, he's indecisive. He doesn't know when he's going to get up. When are you going to get up? When are you going to get out of the house? When are you going to get a job? When are you going to move? When are you going to do something? When are you going to turn off the TV? Get off the video games? Get off Facebook? When are you going to get up? <laughs> I don't know. Secondly, the sluggard says, just five more minutes. Look at verse 10. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. Just a little bit, a little bit more. And poverty will come upon you like a robber. You know, we don't fall into laziness through a decision to never get off the couch again. We don't get home from work one day after living a fairly busy life and say, you know what, I think I'm done. I think I'm done. Maybe an office space, if you've seen that movie. That happened there. Generally speaking, though, we don't, I think I'm done. I think I'm just going to stay in bed. No. Laziness happens through a little bit of t- five more minutes. Hitting the snooze again and again and again and again and again. Just five more minutes. Let me just sit here on my easy chair for a little bit longer. Let me, a little bit of folding of the hands. Just a little bit. So what is the remedy for the sluggard? Well, go to ant school is what God says. Literally, look at, look at verse 8 or verse 6. Go to the ant. Oh, sluggard. By the way, ant right there in the Hebrew is in the feminine. Now, for the men reading this, this would have come across as a double whammy to them. Basically saying, men, you think you are so macho sitting in your chairs. Go observe the women as they work. Go learn from the ant. And sadly, we could say that this would speak very well to Baltimore City. For often it's not our women that are sluggards, but it is the men 
who can't get off the easy chair or off the dope or off the corner. So the answer here, the remedy, is to go to ant school. All right, my, my girls, they, I saw them watching this movie called Ants with a Z. I haven't seen it, but that might be a good training, training tool for the sluggard. Somebody check it out and let me know. Maybe we can use that in our Sunday school class for sluggardry. Go to the ants. Go to, look, what, do you, what do you learn at ant school? Well, you, well, you, you, you watch them and you observe them and you see that they have no, they have no chief and they have no officer, no ruler telling them exactly what to do, but, but yet they're working together. They're not just sitting on a hill waiting for somebody to tell them, hey, go, get, get up, move. No, they're, they're, they're working. They're finding their place in the community and they are busy at work. In the summer, they're preparing bread. She's gathering her food in the harvest. Now, what would the application be for us? For this, this, this well, first, for the people of God here, Israel, as God, this is being written to Solomon and then God's people today in this New Testament era. First, the church is a community where everyone is contributing. Most churches are places where people say, this should happen and somebody should do it. That's sort of the general attitude. Somebody, the sign should be fixed. Somebody should fix the sign. That person should be discipled. Somebody should disciple. That person, that person's struggling. Somebody should talk to that person. Somebody should evangelize around here. Somebody should put on an, on an event that I can go to where I can share the gospel with friends. Somebody should. But I mean, the ants don't do that, do they? The ants don't sit around waiting for an elder in the church to come tell them, hey, why don't you uh, disciple this person? Or why don't you... Evangelist, why don't you talk to your neighbor? Have, use your lunch breaks to meet up with, with, with John so John can be dis, uh, evangelized or disciple. No, they, they just simply find their place in this working community and they, and, they, and they are busy. They are working. So the church community should be a place where everyone is contributing. Create evangelistic events. Disciple somebody. Use your lunch breaks. Have somebody into your home a couple nights a week or on Sunday afternoons after church and encourage them. Volunteer in the nursery or in children's ministry. We have people doing double duty. We can all take up our part. So a church should be a place where everybody is contributing. Secondly, the church should be a place where lazy people stick out like a sore thumb. So picture a sluggard ant. If you can't, I know we can't even do that, all right? There's no such thing. But picture a sluggard ant sitting on the side of an anthill. He's like dug himself his little seat in the, in the sand, and he's just chilling, all right? That ant would stick out like a sore thumb among this army of ants. And guys, sluggards should stick out in the church like, like sore thumbs. Meaning, after some time, you're going to start to feel like, man... I'm not doing anything. I'm not moving. And you'll join the rest of the ants in the mission. Laziness, the point here, laziness kills community. Laziness, if you want to destroy community, be a lazy person. Be a lazy person in your home. Be a lazy person in your community, at your job. Be a lazy person. Be a lazy person in the church and you will destroy 
relationships and destroy community. Thirdly, not only do your personal finances affect community, not, uh, not only does your uh, personal ambition or lack thereof affect community, but also your personal relationships affect community. And this is the no-brainer, but let's go at it. In verse 12, we see a worthless person, which means a person who lives, they live a life that, is, that, that, that lacks worth before God. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. He winks with his eyes. He signals with his feet. He points his finger and with a perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him. Suddenly, in a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. The mocker, the deceiver, the one creating divisiveness in the church. He winks with his eyes, he uses, points with his fingers, he uses his feet. This is basically these little gestures as he points out to his co-conspirator, hey, there's a socially awkward person over, over there. Let's make fun of them. Let's make fun of them. Or, or there's somebody that we can easily take advantage of. Or this guy's, this guy's such a joke. The deceiver, the mocker, the divisive one. Now, there is a progressive nature throughout this chapter, and here we see the, the weight of the progressive, uh, the progressive nature. First, we see a progressive nature of offense. At first, in the, our first example, the offense was very passive. You know, it was actually this, it was a, a, uh, a reckless application of love, you know, co-signing alone, a very passive kind of offense. Um, the second application was, uh, was a, a little more so uh, offensive, but, but still passive, the lazy person, the self-centered person. This one is a, is, is a very active offense. It intentionally moves toward divisiveness, uh, conspiracy, little groups of people talking about each other, turning on, which, on, on one another. There is a progressive depth of sin here. We see in verse 14 where this sin comes from. It says, with a perverted heart. The perverted heart flows, uh, all of life flows from the perverted heart. Perverted heart. It devises evil and wicked plans, gossip and slander and backbiting in the church come from the perverted heart, sowing discord, complaining about somebody after you have supposedly reconciled with that person. It comes from a perverted heart, a harsh rebuke to an individual designed to tear them down, not to win their trust and build them and help them. Alliances that are created, turning hearts against one another. This all comes from this very dark place of the perverted heart. And also the warning is progressive in nature. We go from in this first example, there's, there's not really any warning at all other than the fact that you can ruin yourself uh, if this person defaults to this passive judgment for the lazy person of poverty coming upon you. God sort of handing you over to your own ways. Fine, if you don't want to work, then I'll let you experience what it's like to not work, etc. To here, we see a very active kind of judgment. We see this in the last couple of verses there. It says, therefore, calamity will come upon... 
upon him, meaning he's not bringing this upon himself. This is something divine. This is a calamity which God is bringing upon this person in a moment, suddenly, in a moment he will be beyond healing. And that leads us then into this numeric proverb, looking at the, looking at the body, scanning down the body, focusing on how depraved the body is, how we are broken, how we were created to reflect God's image, yet we have, we have perverted and warped every aspect of our body and we have used it now not to love, but we have used it for our own glory. With this first example, we have used it not to love, but, but we've rather used it in, in a way to, to gain somebody's uh, um, pleasure of us, uh, to, to gain somebody's affections toward us. In the second example, we see this very self-centered a- a- aspect of, of this life that is lived very inwardly and for your own rest and laziness. And then this third one is this very active example of fighting against one another and gossiping and slandering. The, the, the body is fallen. From our head to our toes, we, we are depraved. And we don't reflect the image of God. And instead of seeking to build community, we destroy community. Instead of seeking to love, we hate. Yet Jesus died to redeem our bodies. Think of it this way, friends. Christ, the, the only one who ever lived with eyes that were not haughty. Now Christ actually, who was God, in the very form of God, humbled Himself and took on the role of a servant, washed the feet of His disciples. He never lifted up His eyes against another and looked down on them. My goodness, if anybody could have done that, it was Christ Himself, and He never once had haughty eyes looking down His mouth never spoke lies. His mouth only spoke truth, and from His mouth we heard this phrase, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Meaning, I am here, uh, my rule and reign is now active, it's inaugurated, it's among you, and, and you can be part of it. I'm providing a way for you to be part of it. And that is to trust in me. To trust in my work, Jesus says. His hands never shed blood, but rather He used His hands to touch the leper and through His touch brought healing to the leper's body. To touch the blind and brought healing to the eyes of the blind. Jesus had a heart that never devised wicked plans, but rather His heart was set on the plan from the get-go. And that is the strategy which the Trinity came up with, and that is to redeem sinful man. And Jesus came into this world with His heart set upon this plan, and as He was tempted to walk away from the plan, as He looked to the Father and said, if it's possible, if it's possible, can we do this any other way? Can I redeem sinful man in any other way other than going to the cross? He responded that by saying, may your will be done. And he he resolved to be obedient to the point of death. 
so that you might be saved. His feet never walked, uh, ran toward evil, but rather his feet carried him from town to town to spread the good news of his love. He never was a false witness breathing out lies against others, but others certainly breathed out lies against him, didn't they? And he spoke not a word and was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And there the wisest man on earth died for a reckless, self-centered, lazy, divisive fools. And through His death, God forgave you of your sins. Amen. He rose from the dead. Showing us that there is no sting in death. There is no sting in the grave. And that all who trust in Christ will have the forgiveness of sins now, freed from the power of sin now, and will one day be raised with Christ in glorification. You see, the reason that there might be discord within your own relationships is because there is discord in your own body, in your own being. And the only answer to that is to not just simply try to fix your relationships, but it's to allow Christ to fix your heart. And we trust in the work of Christ. We trust in the life of Christ. We lean into all that He is. And what we find is this. The Holy Spirit regenerates you and He makes you into a new creation. And the old is put away. And you now have eyes that see people for who they are and you love them. You have a mouth that speaks the, the love of Christ and the grace of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ. You have hands that heal. You have a heart that is set not on wicked plans, but on strategies to show people how God loves them. And you have feet that take you to some of the darkest places in your neighborhood, in the city, and in the world to show the love of God. Your identity is Christ. And friends, listen, our corporate identity is Christ. This is why if there is disunity in the church, we lie to the world about who Christ is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we could dive into the sixth chapter of Proverbs. We ask that you uh, give us the wisdom that we need uh, every minute your wisdom through the Holy Spirit guiding and directing our steps so that we might uh, become a community that is one for the glory of God, for the sake of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.